Hey everyone, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. In the spring, I went to a workshop in Boulder, Colorado, a weekend workshop on radical aliveness. And the leader of the workshop was a woman named Ann Bradney. And I don't know if you've ever gone to kind of a personal development workshop that's really good. But in my experience, when you do, you tend to really imprint on the leader, especially if they're doing a great job, if they're handling things with humor and humility and grace and awareness, just kind of look at them and say, wow, I really want to be like them. And I've had that experience many times in my life. And the most recent was with Ann Bradney in Boulder. And the weekend was transformative for me and for the other 25 or 26 participants. And so I knew I wanted to get her on the docket to talk about these issues that we raised and worked on in the workshop. And I didn't know that much about her. I know she'd founded the Radical Aliveness um, Institute, that she was a teacher, that she had a, uh, a two-year personal development program and a four-year professional development program, that she worked with leaders in the business world, in the nonprofit world, and with individuals who wanted to be leaders in their own lives. But what I didn't know was her own personal story. So my assumption, of course, was that she had always been incredibly well adjusted, that somehow she just, you know, gotten lucky genes, lucky childhood, lucky parents. And this all came very naturally to her. And the rest of us were scrambling with her help to catch up. So the first question was just to tell me about your early years, your childhood. Turns out that at the age of 13, she first discovered drugs and drinking. And for the next 18 years, she lived in constant misery, self-medicating and functioning barely above life support. She was in constant conflict with her surroundings, in constant pain emotionally that she had to medicate away with substances. And she was very close to death at the age of 31 when she finally decided that she wanted to live. Well, the conversation went from there. It explored the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. It explored the protests around uh, Eric Garner and Michael Brown in Ferguson and in New York. And it explored my own psyche, her own psyche, and I hope your psyche as well. So this is not a conversation for the squeamish. It's got R-rated language. Um, so if you're listening with little kids, you, you may want to teach them what the words mean first or plug their ears or listen at a different time. Um, but I hope you will find this interaction with Anne as powerful and illuminating and inspiring as I did. So without further ado, Anne Bradney, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. <laughs> Hi, Howard. It's great to be here. Yeah, so... I would love to start by just having you kind of tell us a little bit about your journey from wherever you started to uh, to the creation of the the radical aliveness program. Kind of what um, you know, it's it's very tempting when when I meet people and they've already achieved a great deal from a self development perspective to assume that they were always that way. So, oh my God, yeah. Um, yeah, no, my my journey has been a long one, and basically, I uh, I grew up in the Midwest, and I 
started doing drugs and drinking when I was very young, maybe around 13, and continued to do that until right before my 31st birthday, and was very, very uh, out of control. It was, I, I had a big problem. I managed to keep a job somehow, but I was an addict and uh, it, it became so bad that my family tried an intervention with me, which didn't work, but it kind of planted a seed in my mind. I mean, I knew I had a problem, I would say, you know, probably from the time I was about 15. And in my 20s, my life was really horrifically painful. And, you know, I wanted to stop doing drugs and I wanted to stop drinking and I just couldn't do it. And when I had this intervention, uh, it actually kind of woke me up in a certain way. And I spent one extra year after the intervention um, drinking, doing drugs, but it was just, there was no way to, you know, keep going without knowing that I was going to die, really. And somehow throughout, like, this period, there were moments, really incredible moments in my life where I had periods of grace where I would have an experience of life and myself as really perfect, even though I was drinking and doing drugs. I mean, I can only say it was, a, you know, some kind of divine experience where I was given a taste of what life could be and what was there for me. And um, I came to a night that I was lying alone in my house, in my apartment in New York City, and I had a, a deep, deep awareness that if I continued, I was going to die. And I, it was just clear, clear, clear. And I had also a very strong moment where I decided and knew that I wanted to live. And the next day, I went and got into a an outpatient rehab program, and just that was it. It was over. And the moment I stopped all of that, um, things just started opening up in a very powerful way. I got into a program in New York called Helix that was a training program uh, for kind of humanistic psychology, and it there were different teachers. And in that program, it was a three-year program, this was when I was just newly sober. 
Uh, I don't think they had any idea that I was so newly sober when they accepted me in the program, or they probably wouldn't have accepted me. But <laughs> I met, um, uh, they brought in a core energetics person for a weekend. And it was just um, the moment I had that experience of core energetics, I knew that that's what I needed and wanted. And I started doing therapy with this person and then ultimately um, who was out of the city, but then ultimately ended up working with someone in New York City. And um, there was something about the experience for me of being able to go into my hatred, my rage, my all these incredibly powerful feelings that I think I had never had space for in my childhood and that were probably for sure the source of my addiction, just the inability to have space for all this powerful feeling and aliveness. And uh, that just, the, the moment I started doing that work, I, I went and met John Paracas and said, I want to join your program. Um, I think it was a year between graduating from the other program to starting Core Energetics, and it was just an incredible path of healing for me. And everything opened from there. I finished that program. They put me on the faculty. You know, I can tell you more about radical aliveness. That's a whole other story, but that's the path from my childhood, my, you know, journey to core energetics and really knowing that that was the path for me in terms of the kind of work that I wanted to do. And I had been, um, I had been to college. I had been an artist. Uh, I majored in art. So never, you know, it wasn't, I had no intention of working with people, being a healer, doing this kind of work. But that is where my path led the moment I got sober. It was like every door that opened was that kind of door that just led me into this process. Wow. That's, that's an amazing uh, journey. Um, I'm, I'm curious about the time between when you got sober and when you discovered core energetics um, in, in terms of, you know, you'd said that from like age 15 to, to 31, you knew you had a problem and, sobriety seems to have like solved that problem. Um, did you think you like, that was it? Or did you think, did you start to realize that there were other levels of healing that would be available to you? Did I think core energetics was it? No, the, just sobriety. So checking in and getting sober did, at, at, at some point, did you think, well, um, now my, oh my, my God. problem is solved? It, no, it's, it happened so fast. I mean, it's like, I, the only way I can describe it is that 
there was this huge life that was waiting for me. And it was just waiting for the decision that I was going to live. Because from the moment I got sober, I think I joined this program probably I was two months sober. Hmm. Uh, like that quick. And it it was... I can't describe it any other way than I had no plans, but life had plans for me. And that was very clear. And my life has been that way from the day I got sober. Life has had plans for me and they just show up in powerful ways. And I have followed. And so it, it hasn't been, a thinking process. It hasn't been a planning process. It has been really a process that has been waiting for me. I can't describe it any other way. I think I was either going to die or I was going to live this life. And this life was the life that I was meant to live. And it became just undeniably clear the moment I got sober just because of the doors that appeared in front of me that I would walk through. And I just kept walking through door after door after door after door that showed up. And here I am. Hmm. So during the years that you were drinking and doing drugs and, you know, still functioning, you had a job, you got a college degree or an artist, you had an apartment in New York, which I know a lot of people... (laughs) You know, don't, don't know how I was functioning on a pretty low level. I have to tell you, it was not pretty. I mm. mean, it was about as low as you can get. I would show up and be a waitress at night. I was able to somehow pay my rent and was, you know, drinking myself into blackouts every night. So what, what was the story that you told yourself at that time? You said, you know, I have, I have a problem. I've known for years I have a problem. How did you think of yourself, you know, in, in terms of that problem? Was it just a, chem, you know, a chemical thing or I'll quit tomorrow? Or did, you, did, it, did it, you know, what was the story around your, uh, your drug abuse? Well, I think um, in my experience of myself, I'll speak for myself, I was such an unbelievable victim. I mean, I blamed my family. I blamed my childhood. I blamed everybody. I felt incredibly sorry for myself. And uh, it was everybody else's fault. I think I was incredibly immature because I think when you drink and do drugs and there is no way to develop. So I stayed on a very... Uh, very early, immature stage of development because you can't develop when you're doing that. And I was in a lot of blame and victim. I felt sorry for myself. felt like my parents had failed me and uh, that my life had just been terrible and it was everybody's fault. That was the story. Everybody failed me. It's their fault. And, you know, this is poor me. And what I discovered, which was amazing and uh, amazing in corridor genetics, really amazing. In my uh, third year, and one of the reasons that I love this work is 
I did some very, very powerful work. I mean, I was already healing, developing, growing, you know, growing up, becoming a more grown-up person. But I did some very powerful work around my mother. And uh, it was in a class on what Core Energetics calls lower self, but what, you know, you could say is just our destructive energy, the energy of separation, the the energy that we all have in us that separates from ourself, from life, from the world. And I completely discovered the place in me that got a lot of pleasure during all those years out of punishing my parents publicly by being such a terrible failure. (laughs) You know, it was really, I mean, um, it was a, it was a very deep process, but the energy in it, if you can imagine the rage that started at 13 and continued to 30, the rage and the energy and the power contained in the intention on some level of that child to publicly humiliate and punish my parents <laughs> by, by in a very big way, dying in front of the world. And by the time I finished that process um, and, and went all the way through it, I came into what's underneath that, which was the incredible love I felt towards my mother that it was almost like a repressed memory. I mean, I, I think I had felt hatred towards my mother from my earliest memories. I hated her. And what I came to on the other side of that was just this incredible, profound love that I felt for her and the grief that I felt that somehow in our relationship, for whatever reason, you know, in in my childhood self, that love did not feel received. And it got covered over by hatred and then moved into, you know, punishment through self-destruction. And um, that was that was an incredible moment for me. So I have, um, I've done three years of a very similar um, process called Pathwork, as you know, and I've done a workshop yes. with you. Yeah. So I, I have certain, you know, certain understandings and buckets to put your experience in that makes some degree of sense to me, or at least I'm projecting that they do. I think for a lot of people who are listening, they will have had no experience in, in this type of work whatsoever. So maybe it's, it's a good time now to kind of talk about the core concepts of core um, just just so that you know your your story can start to make a little bit of sense in terms of a a, a revelation. Well, so core energetics is a body is a body based psychotherapy, and it's and it's 
neo-Reiki. And so basically it comes out of Wilhelm Reich. And uh, it's based on the idea that our energy, our feelings, our bodies, our mind-body is gets shaped in certain ways by our experiences in childhood and that we form patterns of surviving. We, we form certain energetic patterns in response to our childhood environment. That includes our family of origin, maybe, um, you know, our communities, even the country that we're part of because different societies have, you know, certainly different ways of, accepting or not accepting energy and that we form energetic patterns based on uh based on what is and isn't acceptable within all of all of this container that we happen to live in and that that we have a deep need as children to be connected to our caregivers, that we need them to survive, and that in order to survive, we will cut off parts of our self that isn't accepted by our caregivers or that we perceive is not acceptable to them, and and that that in turn kind of shapes us so that our full energy is not flowing. Our full self is not uh, accessible to us. So certain, I mean, in core energetics, we would say that there's, you know, five uh, crucial points of development that we can get wounded at. There's um, from zero to five or six, there's the very first uh, wound, which is around existence, which happens uh, in the womb in utero to about three months. There's the wound around need, which happens around, you know, probably, you know, six, six, you know, three months to uh, a year and a half when a child is really in the stage of development of need. Um, then there's the stage of development that has to do with individuation or um, really the part of us that needs to say no. And then there's, uh, that happens around three, two to three. And then there's the stage of development where the child is really trying to um, negotiate between the self that feels magical and powerful and the self that is very limited and that we can get wounded around that place of being able to understand that we're really human with limitations. And then there's a wound around sexuality and all of us get wounded in different ways of some of us very strongly in one place or another. And then we end up controlling um, certain 
parts of our energy. So for me, I got I got wounded a lot around. Um, I mean, I I would say in the beginning that my strongest wound was around need and uh, a feeling that I had to, you know, get myself grown up and not need, not need because my mother had four children in five years and she was overwhelmed. So um, what core energetics works with is that going back into places where we have blocked our life force energy. And when we go back into these places and begin to open up the energy that got blocked there, what we find is first a protest, you know, we find rage, pain, fear, uh, because when our life force energy is blocked, it really feels as if the self is being annihilated and the child will protest first. And then uh, when the protest also isn't received, because if a parent can't receive the life force energy, they're not going to be able to receive the protest either. What happens is we start uh, blocking, cutting off that energy altogether. And that turns into a powerful holding pattern that gets covered, uh, that gets covered over with a no on some level. No, no to my needs. No, I won't feel this part of myself. And oftentimes uh, that no has a lot of very destructive, powerful, I mean, how do, how do we hold back life force energy? We have to hold it back in a powerful way. And we get separated from ourselves. We get separated from the other. We get separated from life in general in these places. And core energetics works to, you know, go back into those places and open all that up. And ultimately with the intention of opening up to all of our life force, opening up to the feelings that got blocked, the rage, the pain, the fear, the hate, um, and finally opening up to allowing again the very constructive, powerful life force energy that wants to flow, like the need, the love, the sexuality, the whatever it is that needs to flow, the existence. I hope that's clear. It's cl- it's clear to me. I'm also I'm also plugging into a place in me that's maybe um, from let's say ten years ago that is is like screaming in protest that this doesn't make sense and it doesn't feel real. So I want I'm I'm, I'm, uh-huh. I'm guessing that maybe some other people are feeling that you know in, in, as a current thing. So I heard a couple of really striking sort of ironies or paradoxes. One, one, yeah. One is. So you you said, you know, your core wound was around not needing, so having to grow up quickly. And it sounds like yeah. the, the way that you expressed it was 
by not growing up, <laughs> by staying, you know, 13 years old, um, which, which seems like, like, very, like sort of cruelly ironic that the very thing you were trying to do turned out to go in the opposite direction. Well, that is always probably the case, right? It's like um, I needed to need, but I couldn't need. And uh, so the way we adapt by cutting off, I mean, if I don't need in a certain way, uh, I'm, I'm not... I'm not going to mature as someone who is allowed to need. I'm not going to be able to, you know, negotiate what it is to be a person, a human being who needs and gets their needs met. So I say very undeveloped in that place. And, and the way we adapt is, you know, it's dysfunctional. So you can't be a human being and not need so I compensated in certain ways. I won't need, fuck you, I'll do everything by myself, but it doesn't really work. I can't do everything by myself. So there, there you know, tends to be a certain kind of, you know, uh, false, false persona that develops um, that will often have all sorts of outpicturings in our life around it. So what do I do? You know, I uh, begin to drink and do drugs, which on some level is um, an attempt to fill myself. Uh, and at the same time, it's a dysfunctional attempt. That's not, that's not the kind of food I need. You know, I need... I need things that really nurture and take care of me and honor my body, but I've spent a lifetime not needing, so of course it's going to turn into something like that. And in every, you know, in every wound you will you will find the outpicturing of the person's life. You know, you can look at the issues, the problems and see the place where uh a powerful life force energy got cut off and therefore never got developed and gets expressed in very destructive, immature, undeveloped ways. Mm. So the the second paradox that I'm hearing is, you know, so a lot of people um, who don't hold much stock in this kind of deep introspective work kind of you know, dismiss all sorts of therapy, psychotherapy or body work in terms of, oh, you know, you're just blaming, you're just blaming your parents, just grow up, you know, take responsibility for your life. And in your story, I heard that it was, um, it was only, only through kind of going back and acknowledging the wounds related to your mother that you were able to go from this, this constant angry victimhood and blaming to finding the love, which which seems very counterintuitive to me, that you you yeah, have, have well, to go into the into the dark stuff to find the good stuff. Yes, absolutely. And and what I would say is that you know there's people probably there's probably some 
some truth in the place where people say, oh, people go to therapy and blame their parents. I mean, I think um, the world of psychology is maybe a little bit guilty around uh, that. And, and so there, people have probably seen evidence of that. But I would say any good healing model is all about self-responsibility and growing up. And if it's not, if it is not about becoming an adult who accepts what happened to them, who is able to forgive the past, who is able to see their parents for the human beings that they were, who is able in some way to have compassion for self and others and what it's like to be a human being and learn how to be very willing to take full responsibility for our own lives. If the healing process that someone's in does not do that for them, I don't think it's a good healing process. So I am a big proponent and Actually, I think what's happened in the time since I was doing the work as a younger person to what I see now, because I see the world as evolving and I see energy as evolving and I see people as, uh, you know, the whole human race as evolving. I see this process really speeded up. So um, in some ways... Um, the way I work and the way the people around me work, I would say, goes for um, not that we don't go into all these places. You know, we go very deeply into deep feelings and pain from the past, but there's also a real um, call for people to be in their adulthood and grow up. And that that gets held together uh, in a way that I think is different than maybe things got held in the past. I just see it as, as um, a faster process, a, a real acknowledgement that uh, we can we can feel our pain. We can feel what happened to us and, and we do need to grow up and take responsibility for our lives. And that is the purpose that we're here to become the empowered human beings that we're meant to be so that we can go out into the world and bring our gifts and, and live the life that we're meant to live and be the constructive beings that we're meant to be. And, my experience is that uh, in the world we're living in today, that is so important and so necessary, and it needs to happen quickly, you know, so we don't have time. You know, I guess I would say, you know, that maybe, you know, when Freud was around, people would go and do 20 years of psychoanalysis. To me, like, not to put anything down. I think there are so many roads to healing, but I see that um, people 
many people in this world do not have that kind of privilege or time or money, you know, none of that, to go into a room for 20 years and look at themselves. Um, so I think the way we're starting to hold things, a lot of people, and this is where radical aliveness comes in, is, is in a different way. It's in a way that um, is more, you know, for... Uh, that's that's not such a private privilege process that but that is more accessible and open to more people and can be taken into more places and adapted to more places so that it can reach more people so that these tools and these powerful gifts can go out in the world in different ways and and reach people that it couldn't reach if it stayed just in the realm of the world of psychology. Gotcha. So, so something else that um, that struck me as not true to my experience for many years is you said mm-hmm. that, that life force energy is powerful. And it sure didn't yeah. feel that way for me. It felt like, you know, so I had some negative manifestations were powerful. If I, you know, if I wanted to compete and, and beat somebody, I could, I could muster some energy. If I felt a rage, I could, uh, you know, terrorize my loved ones. But in terms of a, like, hold, I had no concept that I was holding back a life force so much. that was anything yeah. more than just a, you know, a trickle into a puddle that was just getting you know, it was just disappearing before my eyes that, that, that life felt like, you know, I had, I had to, um, I had to muster it every morning cause there wasn't, there wasn't a, a wellspring. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I would ask people to look at their lives and I would ask them to look at what's not working. And if they look at what's not working and see that as energy that's being held back inside of themselves, they can perhaps begin to get a sense of the power that's within us. And the thing that I love about the work that we do is that it does work with the body and energy. And anybody who's willing to step into a workshop or step into a room and and experience what it is to begin to move their energy or to see other people doing it, will very quickly have an experience of how much energy is actually within us. And I think that a lot of, you know, a lot of the world um, spends time, there's a lot of systems in the world that are keeping energy under control. And I think that is, you know, schools, it's medication, oh, 
you know, you feel grief, let's put you on some drugs. You're moving too much, let's put you on some drugs. You're angry, let's put you on some drugs. Um, I'm not saying that there's not a need for drugs in some cases, but we are way over-medicated. There's a whole, you know, the, the fact that so many people are on drugs is a sign that there's something going wrong. And so if you look at school systems, if you look at uh, all sorts of systems that we live in, you know, our families, there's just a lot of control. And I think the control has to do with a deep fear of people having all of their energy and the myth that if we have all of our energy, we are going to be destructive. And in fact, um, as what Wilhelm Reich said, which I love, is that the reason there's so much control in place is that when people are helped to come into contact with themselves as the source of energy, right? It's not you, Howard, I need to get something from you to be okay. When I really get connected to myself as a person that can hold myself and be okay no matter what, right, um, I can no longer be controlled. And that's scary to the powers that be. Because once we have a whole world full of people who are self-responsible, I mean, it, it sounds, it may sound naive, and I'm not saying that it's an easy thing to do or that there's not a lot of destruction out there or uh, scary stuff happening out in the world. There is. But there are also, all over the world, everywhere I've been, there are people who, when they do this work, and take responsibility for their own energy and their own feelings are capable of making different choices. And I see that when I work in Israel and Palestine with the Jews and the Arabs and see people going all the way into their feelings around the conflict and getting to the deep grief that's underneath, that there is... Uh, a certain ability then to come into a unity to stop making the other the enemy. This is where we're going, and it's it's hard work. It's um, it's it takes a lot of courage. It takes a willingness to uh, feel what's inside of us. And, but what I think your original question was, you didn't experience your energy and we're just, we are so full of feelings as human beings that have gotten repressed and controlled and feelings are energy. And when we're able to feel them, 
and grow them up and, you know, not be afraid of them, then everything can flow within us. And the reason we feel tired and exhausted is because we spend so much time saying consciously or unconsciously, I can't feel this, I can't feel this, I can't feel this, I can't feel this, I can't feel this. So I got to hold it. And holding that much power back is exhausting. So when you don't have to hold, man, there's a, there's a, ocean, a universe of energy that becomes available to you. Hmm. I'm wondering if you have kind of a, a story or an example from the, the work that you do in the Middle East. Is there like a moment that can give people a picture of what's possible? Yeah. Um, there's uh, we were we were working together uh, in Esalen. Uh, the, the group had come to Esalen to do some work, and uh, there was a young Muslim woman who uh, was feeling a lot of hatred to the Jews, a lot of hatred. And I, I, I had worked separately with both groups, and um, to come from a place, let's say, where you have been oppressed and to speak up to the people that have represent for you your oppressors is really frightening. There's a, a sense that Really, I mean, she was terrified that if she spoke up, maybe uh, there would be repercussions against her family or something would happen, even though I knew that wasn't true in this, you know, group of people that had come together, that this is a group of amazing people who are trying to do something Different, And I knew she wasn't going to be punished, but in her body, in her body was all this experience of living someplace where if she spoke up or if this kind of feeling came out, she was going to really be in trouble. So, so is, is you this, don't just, just so I can understand, is this almost like um, I'm, I'm sitting, you know, sitting with, with someone and they, they say, Hey, I'm going to punch towards your face, I'm not going to hit it, but they do it and you flinch. And no matter what you do, you can't not flinch. It's sort of, it's sort of that kind of deep bodily response, to, even though you know it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, I think people could probably relate to this by just thinking about someone that they're afraid to say something to. And maybe some of us have, let's say... Um, you know, we all have some experience of someone who we experience as having power, and maybe we have negative feelings or some kind of truth that is just too scary to say within a system or, or to a certain person that you have that feeling in your body of, 
I can't do this. You know, this is too frightening. It's mm. too frightening to do this. I'm going to get in trouble. I mean, we've all had that experience. And then magnify it uh, in, in, in a place where there's war and death and uh, people being put in prison. So I said, I had worked with her privately, and I said, you have to trust me. You know, we, can you trust me? to bring this out towards the people in this group. And she said, I'm going to trust you. And I got her up and we have something called a cube, which is just a big foam block. And she had a, she had a racket. And I asked her first just to move her hatred and her rage and her blame. So she did. You know, it was pretty, you know, pretty raw, pretty, you know, ugly, pretty, you know, I hate the Jews. I, I hate them. You know, I don't want to see them. I want them to die, whatever. Um, and then I said, okay. And I had talked to the group ahead of time and said, please, I, this is going to be rough for all of you, but I ask you to, to know that in order to get where we're going, some ugly things have to come out first. And so please hold on to each other, give each other support so that the ugliness can come through before we go where we need to go. And, and please hold a sacred space for this because this is sacred work. And without being able to do this, we're not going to get to the place that we're trying to get to. So, so they, I had really set up a container saying, you know, hang on, hold on, you know, hold each other. Just be willing to make a space for this ugliness to come out. And I'm not sure I use that word ugliness so much, but I said there are going to be some really hard things coming out, but this is not where we're stopping. So after that, I said to her, you know, the risk is now that there's, there's, something, there's pain that you feel and you have a heart and I want you to hit again and I want you to bring all this energy through your heart and express something for your people through your heart expressing your pain, which is a very hard thing to do to someone that you consider your enemy, right? It's much easier to say, I hate you, you deserve to die. And she started hitting, and she started wailing, and she started saying, my, please, my, please see that my, People are mothers just like you're a mother. Please see that they cry when their children die. Please see whatever she was saying. She went on and on and on and on. And we're in pain. Can you see our pain? Help us. Help us. I mean, the room exploded. People were sobbing, crying. And, and in the end, she was being embraced by all the Jews, as she sobbed, everyone came together, the Jews and the Arabs, in this place of, we are the same. 
we are going through agony and let's see each other's pain and hold each other. This is a place of unity, right? And in that place, all the all the walls, all the separation, all the place where it's your fault, it's your fault, you're the enemy, it's you're the bad one. It all disappeared into this common agony of mothers, fathers, children who are suffering and a place where everyone could be one in the pain that they were experiencing together. And from that place, a certain kind of bond is formed, a certain kind of connection is formed, a certain kind of understanding is formed that we are human beings, that we're going through something, and that maybe there's another way. Hmm, what a beautiful story. The, the word that comes up for me is trust. And again, it's, an, it's another, I don't know if it's an irony or a paradox, but when, if I, I'm picturing myself in that room, and I'm Jewish, and picturing myself hearing this Palestinian woman wailing and screaming um, about how she hates the Jews and wants us to die, that for me, that feels somehow, it, I, I would I trust her more. <laughs> Seeing the depths of uh, that's that's fantastic, Howard. I love that. You know that we, we when we you know we're we're untrustworthy when we hide this stuff, and and we you know you are so right. Say say more because I'm just uh... well. I feel touched by what you're saying because. Um, because that is the experience that people who do this work begin to get, that the the most, the deepest, darkest uh, parts of ourselves, when brought out in the open with an intention to own them, right? If I let her stay in blame, and if we all stayed in a place of saying, this is really true, the Jews are bad and they deserve to die, you know, that's a level of, that's a level that a lot of people in the world live on. Or, you know, those Arabs, they deserve to die. Or those um, African Americans are all dangerous. Or those white people, or those this, or those that, right? If we stay on that level of blame, blame is a level above truth. It hides the truth. So we start with blame, and then we move deeper. And underneath blame, there's always um, some very powerful, destructive energy in us that we need to own. I hate. I hate, right? And I hate, or I want to hurt you, or I want to separate from you, or I want to make you bad, when that part of us is owned and when we feel it fully, it, for one thing, it takes a burden off the other because they feel, uh, 
relieved. I mean, wow, you're you're saying that you want to hurt me. I feel that. And now I'm relieved because you're standing there owning it. Woof, what a relief. And then when we own that kind of energy, when we put our force behind it, when we move it energetically with the words, with the consciousness, if you do it with all your force, it will lead always, always to the pain underneath. When we get to pain, our hearts open. And that that hatred, that destructiveness is always sitting right on top of the deepest pain that we do not want to feel. And the, the core of this work is that all of us have deep pain. And if we are willing to feel it, it's our pain to feel. It is our pain to feel, just like it was my job to feel the pain of my childhood and to stop blaming my parents, right? What? So what? They did the best they could. It wasn't good enough for me on some level, but it was the best they could. And then if I feel the pain of the places where it wasn't good enough for me, if I'm willing to feel the pain, then I can get out of blame. I can move on with my life. I can love them for the life they gave me. Same with um, this woman and the Jews and the Arabs that I work with. If they can get out of blame, then they have, you know, they have some different choices. Oh my God, when stuff happens in Israel, I'm going to call you on the phone and say, I'm sorry. I'm going to start speaking differently to my family and to my community. Starting on this level, I'm going to say, hey, you know what? Don't talk about Jews that way. Don't talk about Arabs that way. I have friends. You know, it starts there that, like, people, there's a way that we demonize the other, and this is very destructive energy that is just a place that isn't willing to feel the pain. And when we feel the pain, we stop the cycle of violence, we stop the cycle of blame, we stop the cycle of destructiveness. I mean, it's it's really that simple. And it takes courage, because feeling that kind of pain is not easy. I mean, all of us all of us, all of us who are human beings, just because we're human beings, have had our hearts broken. And to fully feel a broken heart takes courage. But when we fully feel our broken heart, we become agents of change and agents of transformation because then we're not afraid of that pain. And then if something happens where we would normally lash out, blame, hurt the other rather than feel our own pain, we have a different choice. And this is a choice of, um, Becoming a person who can love and 
I don't know if it sounds corny, but to me, it's like it is so much harder to love than it is to hate. It is harder to love than to hate and to blame. And I see people who do this work as being the most courageous people on the planet who are willing to stand in the face of things that they could easily strike out at kill over, take revenge, and then make a different choice. I will feel the pain here, and I will make a different kind of choice. And what I see in all of this work that I do, for instance, in the room with that woman, is that love has so much power. It has so much more power than hate. If you can get someone to really open their heart in that kind of way, here is my pain, here are my people, here's the agony I feel, please, you know, this is, this is really connected to love. A whole one person doing that in a room, in all of their power, will crack, will crack the room. And all the hate will melt. It's, it's more powerful than hate. But it, it it's 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 not easy work. It's not easy. Work. So part of my mind is is having another little rebellion here, where I can say, "Good, tell me." Okay, I can. I get. I that. love rebellions. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, we. It's fun to kind of watch the thoughts, right? <laughs> Just, yeah. Say, oh, look, yeah. Look, tell look, me. Look what comes up. So you know, I, I get that it's a great idea to sort of forgive our parents. They did the best they could. Um, as a Jew, I can hear that this Palestinian woman was incredibly brave in, in bringing her pain. And yet right now, as we're recording this, the, the country is kind of in a, a series of upheavals about institutional racism, white cops killing black kids. And, Absolutely. And I'm trying to, you know, so the part of me that's rebelling is saying, wait a minute, are you are you saying that we should let the white cops off the hook? That that um, no. people, uh-uh. people of no. color, right? So, you know, so that, um, that African-American mothers who've lost children should should feel their pain as opposed to demonizing the other. There's there's part of me that that you know that want that says but but certain people are just bad and wrong and need to be punished and I don't want to I don't want to give that up. Ooh, that's such a juicy question. Um, so just give me a moment here because this is, you know, it's so important. So This work is not about letting people off the hook. And this work is not about condoning what is wrong. You know, the wrongs of the world and the bad behavior of the world. This work is about uh, making different choices that stop Um, our own cycle of violence. So here's the thing. Um, We just spent a weekend at my school uh, working on complexity. And uh, we have a very diverse student body. And um, 
there has to be a place where all of us can be held and loved into consciousness. White people, black people. The thing is, most often, not most often, but you know, like pretty much fully, the people in power and in positions of privilege have a harder time seeing what's going on because they are not on the impacted side. So, but um, we're not letting people off the hook. We are feeling what we need to feel so that we can act in empowered ways, right? So that may mean um, being able to be in rooms together and have our feelings and see each other and feel each other so that we can uh, go out in the world with more consciousness and speak in ways and make choices that help to transform this world we live in. So we happen to be living in a country where there is so much oppression against the African Americans and so much institutionalized racism. And we need to be able to see that, feel that, care about it as white people, as, you know, I need to be able to to care about that and I need to be able to speak about it and I need to be able to make choices as a white person that start to help to make a difference around that. And, um, and I think as, as I can't speak for African Americans cause I'm not African American though. I have people in my school who are, but I think, um, if we stay in a place of blame and hate, a cycle continues forever. So there is a deeper place that we can drop to that does not condone the wrong, does not condone uh, people blowing each other up or chopping each other's arms off or you know, showing up in riot gear and throwing people in prison who don't belong in prison or stopping people simply because of the color of their skin. We're not condoning that. But when we ourselves feel our pain fully, we have a certain kind of power and, and strength to respond to situations in ways that have the potential to change the world rather than perpetuate what's going on. Mm. And that's kind of what I'm talking about. It's a, it's a level of, um, it's a level of power and strength that is just different 
than staying on the level of blame and hate. So it's hard. I mean, it's, you know, I'm, I'm in a very privileged position. So let me say, you know, that, um, it, it's one thing for me to say this. It's another, you know, for people on the impacted side to be doing this work, but I see them doing it and I work with people doing it and I'm doing my own work around who I am and my position. And, I see it making a difference. So I see, for instance, in Israel that through all the years I've been doing this work, that the people that I've been doing this work with stay in contact and keep doing this work even through wars. Now, to me, this is profound, that they have the ability to not default back into blame and hate, but that they have the power within themselves to withstand the pain of what they're living through and keep making the choice towards constructive outcomes. Now, I'm going to stand with them. If I got to stand with anybody, I'm going to stand with the people who are doing that because they're the ones that are going to change this world. So that's where I'm putting my energy. That's where I'm putting my gifts. That's where I'm going to give everything I've got to the people who are willing to do it because that's where things are going to change. Hmm. So as I'm, I'm hearing this through lots of different sort of filters and understandings of the world, and one of them is kind of a martial arts filter, where the premise of martial arts is, is one of them is that you, you never attack or defend according to the opponent's strengths, according to their game. So if we're talking about systematic institutionalized racism based on hatred and fear, then hatred and fear in response is you're, you're weaker, you're playing the weaker hand. Um, and so, yeah. and so, and, and also just that if, if my default is going to get triggered and I don't have a choice in it, if I don't have choice, I don't have any power over outcome. So it's reminding me of like the best advice I ever got about being married from someone just before I got married who said, look, you could, you have a choice. You can be right or you can be married, but you, it's very hard to be both. Right, right. And we live in a, t I mean, you said that so well, Howard, so there's a few things that like pop into my mind when you say that. One thing I want to say is we don't skip hatred. We don't skip it. So um, there is hatred that comes up in us in response to things. And if we don't have a place to feel it, and if there's not a, you know, I'm not afraid to go into a room where, where a whole group of people are feeling profound hatred. And I'm not afraid of it because I've been through my own, because um, I, I've probably felt almost everything. I've felt my terror. I've felt my deep grief. I'm not afraid of feelings, and I'm not afraid of hatred because I know 
that if people go all the way into it, I know where they're going to end up. So I walk into a room with that kind of feeling that I put out. And because of that, you know, I think I have a strong faith in where energy will go. So I don't feel the need to control it. I don't get afraid of it. I don't, I'm just not afraid of it. Therefore, it comes out and it goes where it needs to go. And so that's one thing. I just want to be clear that we're not skipping hatred because if hatred gets skipped, it doesn't get healed. We don't get to the healing. But when we have our hatred exactly as you're saying, and we do this process of transformation, we begin to have a choice around how we respond. And that's what you're saying, which is when we are responding from automatic places of fear and hate, it is, it is, uh, we do then engage in a cycle that we're going to lose. You know, somebody's going to lose. Somebody's going to lose. And, and it's going to be the person who has less, less guns, less bombs. You know, it's going to be the ones who have less, right? So, uh, yes, being able to have space to then make a different choice. Wow. It's like, it's so exciting to see see when people can respond in a way that the one coming towards them has no, they're not expecting, you know, and it, they, there's nothing to hook onto. Hmm. There's nothing to hook onto. Hmm. And then something for sound happens, you know? It's like, um, I heard in Egypt they said um, that some some person said during the Arab Spring that when they saw, when, when the government shut down Facebook, the population got filled with power because they knew the government was scared. Hmm. And once they knew the government was scared, they knew it was all over. They hmm. said, we've scared hmm. them. Now we have the power. Wow. You know, it was then there was like, they were like, okay, that's it. Here we come. We've got you on the run. And um, so I think, yeah, there's something very powerful about being able to choose our response that I don't even know what to say. I'm almost without words here because it's, it's so powerful and, and I want everybody in the world to have it, you know, and it's, I want everyone to be able to have it, to be able to have the gift of being able to make those choices and some people come upon it naturally, you know, like Nelson Mandela, you know, some people have the ability 
through the suffering in their life to make certain kind of profound choices that allow them a very you know, profound power. And um, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, I mean, so many people who have this, you know, profound power. And uh, I think it's, it's a, it's a worthy place to put our, for me, it's a worthy place to spend my life putting energy towards serving that goal of helping people to have that kind of power. Hmm. So there are so many more things I want to talk to you about. And obviously, we can go incredibly deep. We really almost didn't scratch the surface of core energetics and radical aliveness. But I would like for you to uh, let people know what you do with the Radical Aliveness yeah. Institute and, and what the offerings are and how people can find out more. Great. Um, you know, well, I'll say that just very quickly that Radical Aliveness is really a group process and um, and it, it's a process where uh, it's, we use the foundations of core energetics as uh, a jumping off point, but it's a process where the group, the leadership of the group is being supported so that there's not a single leader. I'm not the leader that leads all the processes and tells you what to do. It supports an organic process where everyone participates and that there is a, a supporting of an experience of us as a whole, you know, being part of a whole, uh, being a collaborative, cooperative intelligence as a group. And that um, I've worked on this and it's been been developing it with um, Patricia Fost and Patricia Hammond, who are two people who have helped me evolve this work over the past um, seven years. And so I have an institute out here in um, Los Angeles. Um, we're, in, we're in a new place, but we'll probably be moving again. Um, we're looking for another home for our school. But we have a two-year training program that is really focused on uh, self-transformation and leadership, and that is... Um, uh, gives all the foundational aspects of core energetics and radical aliveness. And at the end of that two-year training program, people can apply to be part of the professional training program, and that's another two years. And um, people can go to the website, which is radicalaliveness.com, and see all of our offerings. I do workshops at Esalen Omega, um, Holly Hawk, and people can uh, see practitioners on the that are on the website, and uh, you can contact us by going to the website. And we have all sorts of offerings. Patricia Hammond is getting ready to move to Florida, so we'll have kind of our Florida, you know, base, and she's amazing. And 
Uh, it's just all sorts of uh, graduates who are now doing the work, taking it into business, taking it into other countries. So look us up and, and get in contact. And if there's anything you want to know, I'm happy to speak to anyone. Great. Yeah. So, you know, because in, in, in my experience of doing this work, um, and I can't speak for everyone, but for me, there are aspects of, you know, behavioral therapies and kind of the, the, the Western approach to, to psychological health. It, it feels like it, it didn't go far enough for me. It was it wasn't it wasn't yeah. aiming, it wasn't aiming high enough that there was some difference between yeah. just sort of I'm a functional person and I can be I can be, you know, pretty happy in life versus um, what really needed to happen for me to get moving. And so for, you know, yeah. for, for folks who are feeling like, you know, I've done talking therapy um, and it hasn't worked, that, that there's, in my experience, there's so much locked up in the body that, you know, talking is like, you know, it's like being in a different room than where, where, where the action is. So for, for folks who, you know, yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, and I think it's, I think it's, um, for me, just fun. I, I find it like play, even though people are in terror and crying and rage. It's, there's so much pleasure in energy moving and people coming so alive. And ultimately, that is the purpose of this work is really to feel our pleasure in being so alive and, and, um, being as really being the great beings that we are. We're human and we're great. You know, we're just both and being able to develop all of that, accept our limitations and also claim our incredible gifts that are really so beyond the personality and being able to open to that kind of flow inside of us because we're not afraid to feel anything. Well, Anne, thank you so much. I think I feel like this has been a really beautiful introduction to, to the work that you do. And I've, I've learned a lot from just this, uh, this call and having having come in with some background. So I hope that other folks who are listening, get a sense of the power that lies beyond the the, the, the hatred and terror and, uh, and numbness that, that so many of us just take for granted. So, Anne, thank you so much for taking the time. Howard, I so appreciate it. I had so much fun talking about it, and I, I appreciate your listening and your questions and, and just the invitation to speak. So thank you very much. All right. Be well. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope you got as much out of that conversation as I did. I encourage you to check out the show notes for links to more of Anne's work, especially the fascinating documentary called Group that was made, I think, in 2009 about a long-term group that, that met under Anne's guidance for personal transformation. So sometimes I have trouble exercising, especially in the winter, because the best time for me to exercise is early in the morning. And when it's really cold out, I just don't feel it. 
So I've been looking for ways to get more exercise into my life. And next week's guest, Martin Gibala, gave me some startling research findings about ways in which we can exercise in much less time than was originally thought, certainly much less than the commonly uh, quoted guidelines of like, you know, 30 to 45 minutes of moderate exercise three to four times a week. Um, he found that three minutes of hard exercise a week was sufficient for a bunch of people to improve their health, get fitter, lose some weight, uh, have better biomarkers. And that is kind of his answer to the question, how low can you go? But you can't just kind of do three minutes, um, you know, and not know what you're doing. So in the call next week, we're going to talk about exactly how you can get the benefits of exercise in shorter amounts of time. So I hope you'll join me for that. And finally, if you find this podcast valuable, the best thing you can do is share it. Um, let people know about it, post it on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, on whatever else, and leave a review at the iTunes site so that other people can find it when they're looking for guidance about planting themselves on this precious planet and living happy, healthy lives. Thanks a lot. Be well, my friends.